Here at Sycamore View, our vision is to be about the restoration of God. Restoration is a return to life. Our mission is that we want to help people see Jesus. We've been in a book right now uh, the last few weeks in the book of Hebrews. And today I want to talk about what our mission is. It's helping people see Jesus. I want to highlight some things in the life of Jesus. Uh, And let me begin with Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, which I'm going to be, I'm going to work you through a big chunk of Hebrews because there's a theme that carries through a lot of it. And I feel like this sums up. Everything we need to talk about today, what we need to acknowledge, appreciate, how we need God to stir our affections. In Hebrews 7.25, it says this, Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. And that verse right there tells you there's something Jesus has accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus didn't just come to accomplish uh, by suffering death, by sacrificing so you could have your sins forgiven. He didn't just accomplish that and then sit down at the right hand of God where his work is done and he's not doing anything else. He accomplished something, yet Jesus still lives today to intercede for you. He interceded for your sin, and he still lives today to intercede for, on your behalf before God. It's this beautiful image of Jesus who has not just sat down and crossed his arms and is waiting until he comes back. He is still at the front line. Not offering himself for your sins again, but on the front line of your life, interceding on your behalf for God. That's a beautiful image, right? Um, I had a chance this past weekend, I spoke at a youth retreat down in uh, a retreat site in Lynchburg, Tennessee. Uh, It was not a Jack Daniels event, just to let everybody know. It was a youth retreat, and I was speaking to a group of teens, a couple of hundred of them. Yesterday morning, I I talked to teenagers about how Jesus has conquered the storms in our lives, how he's victorious over our storms, how he walks with us through those storms. I shared some events from my own life. We processed what this was like for all of us. When it was over, there was a 13-year-old girl. She came up to me with tears in her eyes, and she said, do you have a minute where we can talk? So we went out to a porch. We sat down on a little porch swing and through tears this young 13 year old girl shared with me that a year and a half ago last March her dad who was 35 years old whose name was Josh died in a car crash and she just started sharing with me how hard this journey of grief had been for her and some of the emotions that that she's experienced in her life and she asked me to pray for her and this is often when people ask me to pray for them, I will ask, you know, what is it you want God to do for you? Or what do you, how do you want me to go to God on your behalf? And I, I asked her, I said, what do you want God to do for you? Like, how do you want me to pray for you today? And I was expecting her to say, will you ask God to help me in my healing? Or will you ask God to help me in my grief or comfort my mom because she's still suffering? I was expecting something like that. But her, her response was, will you pray a prayer of gratitude? Will you offer up thanks to God for how he has healed me over the last few months and how God has revealed himself to be a God of comfort in my life? I wasn't expecting that. From a young 13-year-old whose request before God was to offer up gratitude because she has sensed in her life over the last few weeks that there is a God who is interceding on her behalf. That God has accomplished something in the past, but God is still doing something in the present. Now, it may take you a minute to get to the book of Hebrews. You may not know your Bibles well. So go ahead and flip there. And I'm going to walk you through a few different chapters in the book of Hebrews today. And as I say that on a Sunday that for some people, you just need to know, it may take you a few minutes to get there. I hope God fills this church one day with people who don't know how to navigate their Bibles because they're new to faith. Who don't know where the books are that we're preaching through because they have, they've spent very little time in the Bible. And the way we get there as a church is we take seriously what it means to be the church. 
That we look at people in the world as opportunities to help invite people deeper with God. And that we get better at saying things like, hey, I am going deeper with God. And as I go deeper with God, I'm inviting you to come along with me to go deeper. So if you need a little time to get to Hebrews, flip to Hebrews. There's a moment in Hebrews where there's this author, this person writing Hebrews to a church. A church that was suffering. A church that was being oppressed by society. And and a lot of people who were either going back to their old way of faith and traditions... Or they were just beginning to kind of give up on church, give up on faith. It's not that they were giving up on God. It's just that they were drifting away. So their their church attendance was getting worse. The way they were even thinking about and processing what every day with God looks like, it was just suffering. So you have this author who writes Hebrews as a way to love people and help people. But there were times the author like would go after people too. I try to be careful how I do this. I don't ever use this stage as an opportunity for anger to pour out from my life onto you or to where I ever even try to say jokes to belittle you or make fun of you in any kind of way. Now, if it's Mark Taylor or somebody like that, I may do that, all right? Um, but there's this moment in, in Hebrews 5 where the author says something and it's out of great love. And maybe some of you need to hear this today in your own life. But in Hebrews 5, 11 and 12, it says this. We have so much to say about this. Now, from chapter 4 through chapter 10, it's a lot about sacrificial language, the blood sacrifice of Jesus, and the author walks through all of that. So there's a lot more the author would like to say, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. So, in fact, though, it's time to be teachers. He's not saying that it's time for you to be a, a preacher or a pastor or an elder or, or a deacon. It's that uh, when you mature in faith, you realize that church and life and faith is not just something you go to receive something. It's that you have something to give. It's not that just you are receiving from other people, but now you've reached a place of maturity where now you're pouring into others. So what the author is saying is like, you've gotten really lazy in your faith. And maybe someone in here needs to hear that today. You're just lazy in life. You're lazy in your work ethic. Some of you have become lazy in the way you love people. You've become lazy in the way you nurture your children. You've become lazy in how you nurture and care for and cultivate your marriage. You've become lazy in how you approach God in your faith. But the author has hope. So he doesn't just throw that out of people. In chapter 6, verse 1, just a few verses later, it's therefore let us move beyond the elementary truths about Christ and move forward toward maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God. So it's just, it's, hey, I'm hopeful that we're, we're moving forward. We're going to live into our confession. Because I know when it comes down to it, most of you want a life that counts for something. And I've sat with people... And, and I don't know anybody who says, I want to live the rest of my life with no passion. We don't want to be passionless people. Yet so often we do settle for mediocrity instead of striving for what is better. And the church that Hebrews has written to had settled for mediocrity. And that's why the word better keeps showing up over and over again, especially in what we're dealing with today. In chapter 7, verse 22, because of this oath, because of what Jesus has done, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. In Hebrews 8, 6, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator to superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises, there's better hope, there's a better covenant, there are better promises, something better for you. 
But sin stains. And because sin stains, since it has to be dealt with, it has to be taken seriously. Uh, we have a dog in our family. It's our first pet, Casey and I have had in our 17 years of marriage. For four years, we have a dog. It's a little Westie. His name is Grizz. When it came time to name Grizz, uh, we wanted a Memphis name. So it was either Grizz or Zebo. We went with Grizz. Grizz has become one of the best ministers in our family. We have a chain link fence. We live in a community with a lot of foot traffic. People like to play with dogs. So they come and hang out with Grizz and then we get to hang out with people. It's remarkable. It's amazing how God can use pets sometimes to introduce you to people and talk about faith and Jesus and life. One thing I can't stand about Grizz and it makes me angry. The fruit of the Spirit leaves my body. I, I, I'm not a good Christian sometimes when this happens. And Grizz is a glee peer. So if you come to my house, and as soon as you step in, you reach down and start trying to pet Grizz, he will dribble a little bit. There's a little bit of pee that happens. I thought he would outgrow this, but he does it. It makes me furious. I now joke with people when this happens. I just say, hey, it just runs in the Ross family, all right? It just happens to all of us. Uh, uh, it happens to Chris. He doesn't now grow it. It still happens. So when people come, we have to say, hey, just ignore our dog for a few minutes, and, and maybe, maybe he won't do it. We have hardwood floors. We have tile, but sometimes Grizz will glee pee on a rug. <laughs> or occasionally, if you're at my house, it's okay to sit on the couch. But occasionally, it may happen on the couch. When this happens, Casey and I don't look at this and think, I, it's all right, we'll take care of that in a few weeks. Uh, it's all right, we'll, we'll clean that up next week or two weeks from now. It would be ridiculous to do that, right? Even people with bad hygiene probably wouldn't do that. It's something we have to clean up immediately. Remember back in high school, we, uh, we had, ate a lot of meals at the table. We didn't eat out much as a family growing up. And we had assigned seats at the table, and we also had rules. And one of the rules was my brother and I always had to come to the dinner table with shirts on. Uh, except on spaghetti night. My mom made an exception. Because <laughs> I started eating spaghetti back in high school. I started eating spaghetti, not with a fork, a spoon, or a knife, but with a cracker. And I would just scoop it on a cracker, and I would eat it. That's how I like to do spaghetti. That's how I did it, all right? Uh, but I began staining shirts to where my mom made an exception on spaghetti night. You don't have to wear a shirt. But then spaghetti would hit my body and, and it was hot. So my mom went out and she bought a white t-shirt, which became my spaghetti shirt. She kept this for years. <clears throat> when Casey and I started dating, I was going home to visit Casey and her family for the first time. My mom knew her family because she had spoken at an event in Lubbock, Texas. My mom called Casey's mom and said, hey, Josh is coming. We really like Casey. Please do not make spaghetti while he's there. Because she thought, if they see him eat spaghetti, they may make this as a reflection on his entire life, and it may not go anywhere. I have two boys who are full of energy, and often they come home from school, and there's stains on their pants, there's stains on their shirts, there may be blood stains. And when this happens, we have to treat it immediately. We don't just put it in a pile and think, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. You've got to deal with it. The very beginning of the Bible, you read about sin that comes in sin stains. And because sin stains, something had to be done about it. So Hebrews 4 through Hebrews 9 talks about this. 
And it introduces this concept of priest. Now, for most of us, we grew up in a faith tradition where you didn't have a priest. So when it comes to how we even understand priests, it's either history that's told us about what a priest is or movies that you've seen that have told you how a priest functions and what a priest does. The main function of a priest is that a priest was one who would offer intercession on your behalf. I love the word intercession. And uh, there's a, a book that our staff is reading right now. Gordon Cosby says this, When my consciousness reaches up to God and out to a person whom God loves, I yearn for them to be together. As I hold them together in my imagination, as I hold them in the orbit of my love, I am engaging in intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is, hey, I want to take the truth of heaven and the character of heaven, and I want to take whatever I'm praying for, and I want these to meet. Last night I was about to speak at this retreat, uh, the third session. There was a room of a couple of hundred teens, and right before the worship time, they dismissed the teens. They said, teenagers, we need you to leave for 10 minutes and go outside because we need to pray over this room before worship. So they dismissed the teens to go have solo time with God for 10 or 15 minutes. And as they did, the adult volunteers began going throughout the entire room, seat by seat, bowing on their knees, holding up their hands, some of them weeping, crying out to God for a connection to be made last night. As I witnessed this happening, and occasionally we've done this in the life of the church, as I witnessed this happening last night, I thought to myself, something's going to happen tonight. God's going to save people. And God did save people yesterday. God's going to redeem people. God redeemed people yesterday. God's going to break chains tonight. God broke chains yesterday. It's this intercessory prayer of I want to take the character and behavior of heaven and what's going on in the lives of people, and I want these to meet. I want there to be a collision between the two. And it's how a priest functioned. This is what a priest would do. So for you to understand how great Jesus is, you need to understand just for a moment how sacrificial system worked back in the Old Testament and how Jesus has come to offer something better. The sacrificial system was kind of like this. When you went to the temple, which everyone had to go to the temple every year, there were certain festivals you had to go to the temple. And in the temple, there was an outer court. And in the outer court, anybody could hang out there. Jews, Gentiles, men, women, children, anybody could be in the outer court. The outer court is where Jesus went when he cleansed the temple. This is where people were selling animals and they're jacking up the prices and exploiting people. There's an outer court. And then you also had a lower court. And in the lower court, everybody couldn't go there. So as you went deeper into the temple, fewer people could go deeper into the temple. The lower court was a place of prayer and connection and, and reciting the Psalms and connecting to God. But then there was also an inner court. In the inner court, fewer people could go. Priests could go into the inner court. And the inner court wasn't a place that was appealing to the senses. The inner court is where sacrifices were offered. So when you read about places in the Bible, about how beautiful the temple was, and how wonderful the temple was, if you were to go into the inner court, you wouldn't think this is beautiful. This is where sacrifices were offered. It's where animals were killed. There was blood. So it was not pleasing to any of the senses, to the eyes, to the nose, to the ears. It wasn't a pleasing sight. This is where sacrifices were offered. This is where sin was atoned for. And then there was the Holy of Holies, the holy place, and only a high priest could go in there. And only once a year. It was a smaller room, but when a priest, the high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies once a year, it was this solemn moment for all the people. Because they knew this high priest is going into this area one time of year, and there the priest, this high priest, is atoning for the sins of all the people, offering blood. 
In the Hebrews chapter 5, you get just a little description of who a high priest is. In Hebrews 5, 1 through 4, it's every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. And this is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes his honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, as you heard me just walk through a sacrificial system and what it meant for the people of God, this is, this is so foreign to us because we don't live in a time where we offer animal sacrifices or where we have priests or you look to your preacher to be the one who connects you to God. So it sounds archaic. It sounds so foreign. It sounds weird. We don't understand sacrificial system. But you can't understand what Jesus does for us in the present and in the future if you don't understand How this moves throughout the Bible. Hebrews is the only book that refers to Jesus as a priest. And in this whole sacrificial system wasn't set up by God in a way that this was God trying to make it really hard for people to connect to God. God was fully aware of how sin stains and how sin has damaged people. And and God was trying to make a way for people to approach God and for God to live in connection with people. And Jesus is going to come and make this even better. If you look in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and 16, it says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, referring to Jesus, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Verse 16, this is a verse I pray over this church, and I pray over many of you consistently. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Some of you are raised in a church or a faith tradition where you were not taught to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Maybe you were taught, and even how you were taught the Bible, was that if you sin tonight and you don't offer up a forgiveness, a prayer of forgiveness for sin, you may be done. And there was fear that was struck in you and chapter 4, 16 is, I mean, so many of you, you live, you feel like you're unworthy to enter the presence of God or because of things you've done in your past that you don't enter into the throne of grace with confidence. But watch what Jesus did. Jesus has invited all people from the outer courts, Jews, Gentiles, Americans, people all over the world. Jesus has come to us, all nations, gender, everybody, and has said, hey, come with me deeper into the temple. And Jesus has made access, has given us access, and has made it available now for anyone to pray. You can connect with God where you are, but Jesus didn't stop there in the temple. Jesus now, he moved people into the places where sacrifices are offered. And what Jesus has done, and has said there's no longer a need for animals to be offered and for blood to be spilled. Jesus did this once and for all, where now you do not have to die an eternal death. And unfortunately, this is where a lot of Christians stop. Like they move through what Jesus has done, moving us to the temple, to the throne of grace, but we stop at a place where we live the rest of our lives in appreciation for the sacrifice of Jesus, but not realizing that Jesus didn't come just to offer a sacrifice so your sins could be forgiven. He offered a sacrifice for your sins to be forgiven and has made a way for you to have access to the throne of God. Undeniable, anytime, anywhere, any place, access. To the presence and throne of God. 
Hebrews 6 says this. Uh, Hebrews 6, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That forerunner is that Jesus ran into the fire so you don't have to live in an eternal fire. He ran into the mess so you don't have to deal with the mess. He ran in. He's a forerunner. He willingly did it. And then you get this little verse about Melchizedek. Melk, Zeke, I don't know what they called him back in the day. And you have very little about this guy in the Bible. You read about him in Genesis 14. There's a reference to him in Psalms. And the author of Hebrews picks up on this. And here's what Hebrews tells us about Melchizedek. In Hebrews 7, 1 and 2. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem means king of peace. So all we know about King Melchizedek is he was a king and he was a priest. If you were a king, you couldn't be a priest. If you were a priest, you couldn't be a king. Melchizedek was both. And he blessed Abraham. And that's almost all we know about this dude. So it's like what the author of Hebrews wants to do is find the high priest in the Bible who seems to be the high priest that was the best who ever lived. Who had power and influence, who blessed people. Blessed Abraham. And the author wants you to know that as great as King Melchizedek was, King Melchizedek could not give people undeniable eternal access to God. Only Jesus can. You can't put your faith in Melchizedek or Moses or Abraham or all these other characters throughout the Bible that you put your faith in Jesus. And let me just read you a few places that highlight who Jesus is as a great high priest. And let these sink in and let your affections be stirred for Jesus because of this. In Hebrews 7, 25 through 27, it says, Therefore he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. In Hebrews 9, 11 and 12, it says, But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood and goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Hebrews 9, 24 through 28, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, there was only a copy of the true, hand, true one. He entered him, uh, heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And for the reading of the word of God, the church says, this is what Jesus has done for you. Did you see how many times that, that phrase, once for all, showed up? There's a song that uh, people started singing back in, when I was in college. 
and people loved the song. And it was, can he still feel the nails every time I fail? Can he hear the crowds cry crucify again? It's like a rhetorical question, like in the song, and you're asking a question, and I remember being at youth events and college events, and, and people like, were just weeping in the song, ready to surrender their lives to Jesus again. And rarely are there songs that just do not light because they're theologically inaccurate, but this is one of them. It's just not accurate. Jesus doesn't feel the nails every time you sin. He felt the nails once. And he dealt with sin once. That every time you fail, Jesus isn't hearing the crowd crucify him. And he's not having to suffer every single day because of your sin. The power of what Jesus did is on one day, in a matter of six hours, he took on the sin of the world and dealt with it once for all. Where he's not having to offer himself or blood over and over and over again. Once for all, he has made a way for you to have access to God forever. He's made the way. And the way that access works is not that Jesus becomes a tour guide and if you're interested that he'll move you through the outer court and the lower court and the inner court and see if you're interested in the throne of God. The way it works, will you go back to that very first slide in chapter 7 verse 25, is that Jesus saves completely those who come to God through him. You've got to make a decision for God through Jesus. Access comes to you realizing that if you want access to the presence of God, you can't bypass or minimize or neglect the suffering that took place for that to happen. And it leads you to a place of appreciation and a place of surrender where we have to confess Jesus as the Lord of our lives because we can't get there by effort, by money, by no other way but through Jesus. This is why in baptism in this church, we practice full immersion, that we go under the water symbolizing dying with Christ, and we can come out as a new person. And when this happens, it does not leave you in a place where the rest of your life is only about appreciating the sacrifice of Jesus. It's realizing that Jesus has given you undeniable, eternal access to God. Anytime, any place, God is there. He's for you. So maybe for some of you today... You've never said yes to Jesus. And there's an entry point for you to realize the access and the benefits that come with the access. And for some of you, you've made a decision for Christ before, but what you need to wrestle with today and maybe talk with, in your, friend, with your friends or life groups is what are the obstacles in your life that are keeping you from channeling this eternal undeniable access in your life? Because some people think, I'm struggling getting there the access because I'm unworthy, but Jesus has made you worthy. Some of you may think, I'm struggling getting there because of the things I've done in my past. You can get there because of what Jesus did in the past. He's made a way for you. One of my mentors, Randy Harris, my freshman year of college, he taught us this. He said, when God looks at you through Jesus, he sees you as sinless. So live the rest of your life becoming who God has already made you to be. Be who you are. This brand new identity that we get to live into. And may God remind you this week of this eternal access that's been given to you. I want to ask our elders and prayer leaders to go around the room to receive you.
They're here to receive you from, for prayer, to speak blessing over you, to intercede for you. There are four baskets. If there are any prayer requests you want to leave in them, we pick those up on Mondays. We pray over them. If there's something in the way of access to God in your life, feel free. Trust us with that. Trust us as we intercede for you on, on God's behalf. We're going to stand together and we're going to sing this song as a declaration. So let's sing this as a confession, as a declaration as we leave this place.